listeners, this is Charu Sharma from Silicon Valley and you're listening to Drive Your Career. We invite the most impressive humans to chat about finding success and fulfillment in their careers. We are proud to launch our show with a women's special season where our first 10 episodes will feature some extraordinary women. I am so excited to launch our very first episode with my hero, Nora Denzel. So Nora grew up in um, Upper State New York in a farm uh, and went on to become one of the youngest executives at IBM. She then went on to lead technology teams of tens of thousands of technology professionals at Intuit, at HP. She's given countless inspiring keynotes at conferences like Grace Hopper. She was one of the first women and one of the youngest people to serve on public boards. And uh, this is a little fun fact, but five years ago when my first book was published, I would have killed to get an intro to Nora for a foreword by her. And I just couldn't find an intro to her. But now we're actually working on a book together. And it's like a dream come true for me. But without much further ado, um, welcome, Nora Denzel. We're so excited to have you on the show. Thank you, Cheryl. And I am excited to be here. You've often said that career is not a ladder. It's an obstacle course. What does that mean? Well, you know... I have said that a lot. The career is not a ladder. It's, it's for me. It's it's more of an obstacle course. So what I it's all about mindset, having the right mindset about your career. Before I went into technology, everybody talked about climbing a career ladder, and uh, those words implied upward momentum, and to me, it meant a straight shot from here to there. But all the time that I was looking for a ladder, I kept getting huge interruptions, like. Um, an example would be my hiring manager left, and he was my only ally. I didn't know anyone else at the company. My strategic project got canceled. Um, our division got sold to, to another company. Our CEO was involved in a long and lengthy, salacious scandal, which really um, hurt, hurt selling. And so all the while, I'd see other executives, um, and it felt to me that they were just moving forward and climbing this proverbial ladder. And I was kind of stuck in the game of shoots and ladders. Or in India, they call it snakes and ladders. So one day I heard a quote and the quote said, things are done not to you, but they're done for you. And it really triggered a mindset change inside of me. And what if it isn't a career ladder, but an obstacle course? And so, you know, Sharo, if you think about it, if you and I are going on an obstacle course, we'd face challenges different than if we were told we're going on, a, you know, let's climb a ladder. So instead of feeling sorry about an obstacle, we'd get excited and we'd know we would be using new muscles and learning how to traverse it and, and then we'd move on. So that's what I mean by career being an obstacle course. It's about setting the right mindset so that things aren't done to you or they're done for you. And by the way, when I look back, it was during those trying times when I thought those were obstacles, when I learned the most and I became a better leader. That makes a lot of sense. I really appreciate how how this mindset puts one in the driver's seat to really take charge of their life um, and just be this agent in their life. <laughs> and so that brings me um, to something else that you say often, which is about women being uh, miscongenialities in the workplace and trying to be agreeable and trying to um, be likable because studies have shown that uh, success and likability for women don't go hand in hand. 
And um, it's such a timely topic because we're writing this book together, uh, mis- uh, Killing Miscongeniality for Women to Unlock Success in Their Careers. And so I'm curious, um, where did you get this phrase, killing miscongeniality from? And what do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, so I got the phrase comes from watching beauty pageants when I was little. So when you were young, did you have that where you grew up where you could watch Miss Universe or, you know, Miss Miss World? Those Did you have yeah. those contests? Yeah. So. I did. And I've also seen that movie by Sandra Bullock's Miss Congeniality. Uh, you've heard of that. Yes. Yes. It came out. Yes, it came out much more when I was an adult. But when I was watching when I was watching as a kid, I would watch these pageants. Not that I had anything to do with those pageants. And um, I noticed that there was one title that was given by the other contestants. And it wasn't it wasn't voted on by the official judges. The other contestants in the pageant picked out who was the nicest person. And that was Miss Congeniality. And what I also noticed was Miss Congeniality never won any of the contests, <laughs> not a single one. And so I realized that um, the person that wins the pageant was never voted the nicest person. doesn't mean they were mean or bad, but they just weren't voted the nicest one. And so I was thinking about that in the context of my career. In order to achieve my career goals, I might not be elected to be miscongeniality. So, so it's not that I intentionally tried to make anybody unhappy with me, but sometimes I need to act in a manner in which I wasn't raised. And I'm sure, I don't know, like you, um, you know, don't raise your voice, don't interrupt, don't walk out of a meeting. You know, those aren't behaviors normally associated with being a nice woman. You know, um, so I don't know if your experience was the same as mine, but like at, at work, people, and mostly men, because tech was full of men, would they would tell me things like, you know, you need to smile more often. You need to tone it down. Or in my performance review, they'd use words like, you know, she could be friendlier or she's sometimes bossy. Sometimes she gets emotional or irrational, you know, and, and my husband got praised for being aggressive and an independent thinker. So I think that I always think, look, I'm not here to get voted most popular or to have, you know, the best words every minute or to smile constantly or to, you know, to meet some kind of some kind of stereotype you have of what women should act like. I'm here to run the company. And so, um, so that's why I chose killing miscongeniality because I needed to remember what prize I was aiming for. It wasn't, it was to lead large groups that were vital to the company's success. And if, if one day my peers elected me as the nicest person, that would be super. But if I was respected for the results our groups produced, that would mean more to me than being miscongeniality. So hence that's what's behind killing miscongeniality. Sometimes people ask, how do I, do I really have to change who I am in order to advance my career? And I, you know, I never changed who I was. My core values are the same, but I definitely changed my behaviors for different situations. And so I give you an example, like when when I'm in church and there's a song just in my ear, like that I can, you know, that they call it an earworm when you're just thinking about a song. I just want to sing out that song, but I'm in church. So my behavior, I, I'm not being inauthentic by not, not doing what I'm impulsively want to do. I'm changing my behavior for that situation and waiting for the situation where that makes sense. And normally for me with singing, that means being alone and, you know, in a non-crowded space. So I think in the, in the workforce, sometimes raising your voice is necessary because that's the norm of how things are done in this company. It doesn't mean I was raised that way or I do it all day, but I, I have a toolkit of different 
types of ac actions that are effective. And the key is pulling out the right tool at the right time for the right problem. And so I don't think of it as in, in not being authentic as much as I think of it as being situational and being effective. So I want to be right. And I also want to be effective and effective in this organization might be a different, it might look different than being effective in that organization, but none of them go against my core values, but I just use it. I adapt my style, but I don't adapt my, my integrity or my values or my morals, but I do adapt my style. And I don't think that's inauthentic to adapt your style. Cause I think we do it all the time, either consciously or subconsciously. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I think in my upbringing in India as well, it was very similar. Um, and I think, um, as I'm sure you do too, it's pretty universal where it's so uh, deeply ingrained in us, in our upbringing, to be polite and well-mannered and soft-spoken and trying to create harmony. Um, so this definitely makes a lot of sense. I think I have paid penalties for being sort of this polite, soft-spoken person yeah. in my career. And um, I had to change my mindset and sort of kill that miscongeniality in me to get ahead in my career as well. So that definitely resonates a lot. Yeah, you know, and it still goes on today. Like, um, you know, I sit on boards now and we were reviewing a set of executives the other day in a company that I'm sitting on a board. And so the management was presenting these executives. And I really noticed the words that were used to describe some of the women. One man said, like, if she gets mad, she becomes snippy or she isn't going to win a personality contest or she's too focused on her career. And then when they talk about men, they would say, you know, he's got the aggressive style we need here, or he knows how to command the room where the woman got penalized um, for being too focused. And so it was really interesting that it still goes on today. And you just have to keep your eye on, on what prize you're looking for. That makes sense. So speaking of brand and personal brand in the workplace, Nora, um, a lot of people think that their image in the workplace is formed by what others talk about them, right? Um, you seem to disagree. So tell us more about that. You know, I do. I tell a lot of people that you're, you are your own PR agent, meaning that every time you open your mouth, um, it's just like you're issuing a press release about a product, except the product is you. And let, let me just give you an example. There was a year that I had a job in which I commuted to Tucson, Arizona from San Jose. And if you've never been to those cities, they're not too far apart, but it required flying in and flying out on a weekly basis. And it was really taking a huge toll on my personal life. And I learned a lot from there. Most, most decidedly, I learned I'm not one to have a job where I commute weekly. And so when people asked me about my experience, you know, how I liked my new job, I could have answered truthfully and said, you know, I, it's really not for me. I'm not really one to commute, but it would have, it would have conveyed or issued a press release that I wasn't really serious about my career and not willing to do the sacrifices that it takes to move up. And so my point is that every time you open your mouth, it's a press release and, and the information about you in the grapevine, most of it comes from you. It doesn't come from, you know, your enemies at work. So you need to be very careful um, how you word your press releases when you speak. So, for example, in the light of that job, um, I told the truth that I'm learning a lot, but I didn't tell, you know, I, I heard once, tell the truth, but don't tell so much of it. I just edited it and I'm learning a lot, you know, and I'm enjoying, you know, working in Tucson, which I was, 
but I edited the part out of the press release that said, I'm not enjoying the travel and I'll never do this again. And so just be very careful inside of work. Um, every time you open your mouth, you're issuing a press release about yourself that people will remember. And you want to make sure that you're shaping it just as mindfully as you shape uh, the marketing of, you know, of a digital or a physical product. Absolutely. And I think that's one of your most tweeted quotes about uh, speak the truth, but not too much of it. So Nora, where can people find you on Twitter? So on Twitter, let's see, my handle is at Nora Denzel. That's one word, N-O-R-A, last name Denzel, like Denzel Washington, D-E-N-Z-E-L, but I'm not related to him. <laughs> Got it. So if, uh, all you listeners out there, if you're not following Nora on Twitter yet, I think you want to go do it right after this podcast because she has these gems that she drops literally twice a week. Um, and it's just, it's so inspiring. I start my day basically by reading her tweets. So um, go do that. Um, so um, Nora, going back to our conversation, we were talking about how you are your own PR agent. And um, I think often women have trouble and I'm guilty of that too. Um, often women have trouble um, making their managers or hiring managers aware that they want a certain job, right? And um, and um, I've heard you um, in the past speak about how jobs are not posted on job boards always. So tell us more about that. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, there was, um, when I entered the workforce, I somehow got, I, I was thinking that everything is fair like the most deserving people get the best jobs and that everything's posted so that everyone has an equal chance to apply. But what I learned right away was none of those two things, they sometimes can be true, but they're not always true at all. And so you really have to make sure that it's not, you know, who you know um, or what you know, it's who knows what you know. And what I mean by that is that you want to be able to communicate what it is you're looking for or what it is you're talented in and that people know, people know that. So when jobs are even thought about or they come up that you're considered for them. And I find that sometimes women think, well, my work will stand for itself and I don't need to talk about it. Um, but I think that, you know, it's not always fair and the jobs aren't always posted. So you need to make sure everyone knows about the good work that you're doing and things that you'd be interested in um, because there isn't some magical listing in the sky that's automatically going to match you with the opportunity you're suited for. Does that make sense, Cheryl? It does. And I love that. It's not who you know. It's not what you know. It's who knows what you know. So now, now you know what I mean by her Twitter jump. So go, go follow her. Um, Nora, um, what was the tipping point in your career where you knew that you had become someone important? And how did that come about? <laughs> well, it's funny you ask that because here's my secret. There's no point in my career when I thought I was somewhat important. Um, I, through my whole life, whether I was in high school or college or, or working professionally or now as a board director, I thought there would be... Um, some feeling of, wow, I finally kind of made it. I can kind of not feel that I don't know what I'm doing or not feel that, um, you know, I'm, I'm lacking in some manner. And what I found that at every level, I just see how much more I don't know and how big the path is ahead of me. 
So there's no point that I rested and said, oh my God, this is it. I've summited. I'm important now. Um, the very same insecurities I had in elementary school are still with me at every position I have. It's just that there's different people surrounding me with different titles. So it could be, you know, you could be a class officer in high school and you, you, you think, well, I've made it, but you don't think that you're like, wow, these other people are better than me. And then, you know, you get to college, you're the dorm president or the RA and you, it, the same insecurities are there. And now today you're just sitting on fortune 500 boards and you feel the same exact way. So there's no tipping point for me anyway. Maybe there's other people that do it differently. Um, but I, all, I'm just convinced and reminded daily, not of what I know, but how much I have to learn. That's, um, that's very validating to hear because especially earlier in our careers, we feel a lot of imposter syndrome. But yeah. it's really helpful to hear someone in your, I mean, someone of your caliber talk like that. Uh, it seems like we just have to get sort of just comfortable with being uncomfortable, which I know is something else that you're a big proponent of. Um, sounds like it never goes away for, for good you or for bad. Really didn't, you know, maybe it will for others. And like we said, you know, I was born in, the, so I'm in my late fifties. It's still here. So I, if I'm talking to someone in their twenties or thirties, I, I hate to tell them that. No, nope, still here. I mean, I handle it much differently now and I'm better at it, but I still have it every day. Nora, you've said that you followed the norms earlier in your career and then you changed those same norms. What do you mean and how did you do that? So so when I talk about, you know, you want to conform to the norm, you know, before you can set the norm, you know what I mean is that if you want to make affecting permanent change inside your organization, but but you don't have position power, meaning you don't have a manager's position or a second line manager or the division president or the senior vice president, if you don't have positional power, you know, it's going to be much, much tougher to make, you know, lasting permanent change. And so maybe others can, but for me, I decided that I wanted to stand out at work. So whatever the norms were, whatever the goals were, I wanted to achieve it really incredibly well. And I didn't want to stick out, meaning that um, I didn't, I didn't want to point things out and you know, and try to affect change from my level. But if I felt an organization needed change, I'd always have a strategy to excel in my job. And that when I was recognized for that, and I was in a position that I had a, had more power and more of a following, then I would change the norms from the top down. So it could be because I don't have the skills to build a movement inside a company, you know, from the bottoms up. Um, I think that, um, some people that do that, a lot of times, if you're the first one in a company to point out a problem, you're considered a malcontent and you're con you become collateral damage, meaning, you know, you're asked to kind of move out. Um, so over time, that company will get their issues solved. But the early problem pointer outers are typically not not the ones that get solved. So maybe it's different now for you guys and the younger generation. I've seen Google employees walk out of their job or Amazon warehouse employees you know, really speaking out through social media. But during my time, I concluded that it was easier for me to affect change um, when I was in a position to do so and to be allies. Um, as you know, rules favor the rule makers. So if I was an ally with the rule makers and they saw me more of a peer, I had a better chance of making the changes that were needed rather than um, a voice from below. And so maybe that's just me. 
And maybe that was just the times, but that's what I mean when I talk about, you know, conform to the norm, whatever group you're in, conform. How does it work? Who has the power? How do decisions get made? You know, understand that system better than any than anyone else. Become recognized by that system and then slowly change that system. And that's what I've found more effective than, you know, being a voice from underneath to try to affect long sustaining permanent change. That makes sense. I think it's definitely become easier to be transparent for us without repercussions. Um, relatively but I think um, even so what you're saying makes a lot of sense because it's one thing to be right or to you know just say what you have to say and it's another to actually be effective um, with getting the right buy-in and playing the right game to actually get the output to make that impact that you want to make Um, yeah you know you remind me one of the one thing one manager said to me because I was so frustrated I think I was in my early 30s so frustrated about something wasn't being done right and I was pointing it out and my manager said to me do you want to be right or do you want to be effective you know what's your goal here and it really stuck was okay you know I know what's right but I'm not being very effective by showing my frustration speaking out you know those I'm not effective. I'm right, but I'm not effective. So I always want to be in that quadrant of being right, but also being effective at the same time. And sometimes for me, being effective is working within the confines of whatever group I'm in. That makes sense. Um, Nora, you were one of the first women um, ever to sit on public boards. And what advice do you have for women who now want to get on boards? And especially if they're earlier in their career, what steps can they take? Yeah, you know, I um, let's see, I, I joined my first, so the average age of a public board member is 63, and I joined my first public board when I was probably 42. Wow. Which was considered young, believe me, and uh, I'm not- It still is. I know. It, it was considered young. Um, there were other women, though, on boards, though, um, but it was in the low- low single digits. Now we're probably at 20, 25%, maybe getting nearer to 30 because places such as California and other countries, for example, have um, quotas um, and diversity is much more focused on now. But if, if you ask, aspire to be on a board was your question is um, I would say be really good at something and be known for being good at that. You know, boards have specific specs that they're filling out and um, as they cast their net, they want to find someone that meets those criteria. And if you have the criteria you're looking for and they know about it, you have a higher likelihood of being on. Um, but what, what I'd say is if I was early in my career, I'd at least investigate what boards do. You know, who are they? Who's on them? Why are they on them? What do boards do? And what are the backgrounds of board members? And then I would make sure in my career that, um, especially in the later part of my career, that I was choosing positions that would give me the requisite skills um, that boards are looking for. And um, and then uh, I would make it known that's something I'd want to do and seek mentorships um, from people that have served on boards and just talk to them. And I think, I think a lot more women now are aware that boards exist. Uh, I was certainly naive about boards until, until probably my 40s. I had no idea who they were, why they existed, and what they did. But boards are much more visible now. So I think I would just learn about it and um, do some research and then just talk to board members. Got it. And I would also have that um, 
nonprofits or smaller startups uh, might be an easier in. So try to find opportunities where you can and really show your value and then work your way up. Um, yeah, I think especially if you're younger or earlier in your career. I think that's a good point. Not every board is a public company on the Fortune 500 list. There's advisory boards, there's nonprofit boards, there's private company boards. And so you really want to find a match between what the company needs and how much time they want from you and what your skills are. And it could be in the nonprofit realm and all while you're learning governance, it'd be a great thing. And as over time, your boards and opportunities will change and get bigger or get more industry specific as, as your career changes. I think it's a great idea to seek those boards out, not necessarily a Fortune 10 board, but a, but a, uh, but something that's more suited to your interest and to the size that you're used to uh, managing. Yeah. Definitely. Nora, a lot of what I'm hearing from you, whether it's to do with boards or um, managing your professional brand in your workplace, a lot of it is about um, knowing um, what your unique advantage is, what your value is, and then making sure the right people know it. Um, You are a very popular mentor, especially in Silicon Valley, especially in tech. And you clearly prioritize making time to mentor professionals, um, women, men, others. Um, what is the best career advice that you have ever received from a mentor? The best. It's really hard to. Uh, or one of the best, something that has stuck with you. Oh, uh, that stuck. I think, well, the one I shared earlier really stuck is you want to be right or effective. That one burns right to the center of my soul, you know, and it, it helps me inside of work and outside of work of what is the most effective thing to do in this situation right now? You know, you have the right instinct of what needs to happen, but what's the most effective way to, to cause that to happen? And so that's something that someone like me that, that confuses sometimes activity with results is really focus on what is it I'm trying to achieve and then how not only what I'm trying to achieve, but the how is as important as the what. And that's why you want to be right or effective. Being right is the what, but the how um, determines if you're effective or not. That's that's one of the gems that I received uh, from a manager that really, really stuck with me. The other one comes from Grace Hopper. Um, as you know, I was on the board for 10 years of the Indeed, a Borg Institute, which puts on the Grace Hopper Conference, which is the largest women's engineering conference in the world. and uh, Grace was a rear admiral, as you know, in the in the Navy, and she invented the COBOL programming language, among other things. She was one of the first programmers. And she said, uh, ships in the harbor are safe, but that's not what ships were made for. And I thought that that was pretty mm. good. I'm probably paraphrasing a little, but I thought it was great because sometimes I'll be doing something and I say to myself, how did I get this position? I'm from a farm in upstate New York. You know, I wasn't just a programmer in my cube. How did I stick my neck out and become whatever it is I've become? And then I remember her quote was, yeah, you know, I'm safe in the harbor. I'm safe, you know, in upstate New York on a farm. You know, I'm safe. But that's not what I was meant for. It's like, you know, you're having, you're daring greatly, as Brene Brown would say. So that really stuck with me as well. We're safe in the harbor, but that's not what we were meant for. I love that. And it sounds like throughout your career, whether at the beginning or now at this, this caliber uh, where you stand, it sounds like you continue to challenge yourself and really drive your career. So that's just so inspiring and very commendable. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
Thank you listeners for joining us today. If you liked this episode, don't forget to share with your friends and subscribe to Drive Your Career wherever you get your podcast. Have a great day and I'll talk to you next week.